Well, welcome to another Sad Songs podcast. Today we're going to have another kind of special episode where we talk about um, different songs from one album. And the album we're going to talk about today is Carrie and Lowell, the album by Sufjan Stevens, released in 2015. The album is, I was going to say loosely, but not loosely, um, closely related to the death of his mother, Carrie, in 2012, and his working through this death. I think it's the first thing that he released uh, after the death, and he'd spent three years working on it and working through that process. It's quite well known in the public record that Stevens's mother was depressed, schizophrenic, and had abused substances, and that she'd left him in the care of um, other members of the family when he was one year old, and had occasionally revisited him and gone back into his life for, for various periods, but not for a sustained period of time. This might explain some of the loss and some of the yearning for this this object which is gone. Before we go through the songs one by one, because we're each going to talk about one song uh, today, I will say a little bit in general about what's going on here. I've mentioned before that I teach a music and philosophy module, um, and one of the texts that we always read and that we've talked a little bit about in this podcast so far is Freud's Morning and Melancholia. And when the students are tasked to go and find a bit of music that they might like to apply these concepts of morning and melancholia to, this is by far the most popular thing that comes out. It's probably the only thing, really, that in the last couple of years I'd expect multiple students to have a look at. And you can really see these two processes to some extent in it. You can definitely see what Freud calls the process of mourning, which is um, having a sadness about an object which has been lost, an object which is gone. And you can also see some aspects of the second process Freud describes of melancholia, which is, we've said this in a previous podcast, a more extreme reaction to the lost object which involves some things which go beyond just mourning. And some of the things which it goes beyond in terms of mourning is a level of self-reproach, self-hatred. This is to do with, and we'll talk about this a bit later maybe, this move by which the lost object is incorporated into your own ego and your own sense of self. But of course, one of the other things Freud always says about melancholia is that it's often an unknown move and the melancholic doesn't know that they've hit this sort of phase of melancholia because they've repressed this move in which they take the lost object to be part of themselves. And this is something you definitely can't accuse Stevens of in this album. In many ways, more than being just about money and melancholia, what I think this is a beautiful example of is an example of working through, an example of catharsis, an example of the talking cure, an example of trying to get past some moment and to do what Freud talks about in money and melancholy, which is redistributing this energy which has been invested in the lost object and starting to form some healthy pattern of where it may go to another place in your psyche. So we're going to go through our songs today uh, one by one and also have a more general discussion, as, as I just did there. And we'll do them in the order that they appear in the album. So this would leave uh, Russell going first to talk about Should Have Known Better. Yeah, hello. Um, so I'm going to talk about the song Should Have Known Better. And uh, to me, this song is a bit of a microcosm of what happens in the wider sense of the album. It seems to me to be quite a complex and non-linear grief reaction that he's going through. Obviously, uh, the complexity to that relate to his um, quite confused feelings, I think, with the death of his mom. Uh, I think with her having been uh, estranged for a lot of his life, it kind of makes that response to her death or the uh, 
the more confusing it at times certainly kind of skips around certainly within this song it, it the, the, the kind of emotion surrounding the uh, the grief are somewhat confused and uh I think there's a double layer to the, the sadness. Well, it's, I think the sadness is multi-layered, but within this song, there seems to be um, the grief itself, but then a sense of guilt at how he has handled the grief at various stages. Um, he sort of starts off by kind of speaking about uh, this black shroud, um, which I, I believe seems to be a metaphor for, for depression and uh, the way that it's kind of holding down his feelings. Um, and he kind of talks later in the song about this kind of sense of emptiness and numbness. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of almost, I guess, sense of self-reproach, having experienced that kind of sense of, of numbness and not knowing quite what to do with his emotions. And that kind of that double layer of the, the, the grief itself and then the guilt kind of reminded me somewhat of a, a Buddhist metaphor that we occasionally use in dialectical behavioural therapy, and it's called the the two arrows metaphor, which essentially goes, I think uh, Buddha had been speaking to a student and asked the student, if the person is hit by a, an arrow, is that painful? And uh, the student replies, yes, it is. And the Buddha asks if they're hit by a second arrow, is that even more painful? And the student says, well, yeah, it is. And Buddha responds, well, the... We can't always control the first arrow, uh, the first arrow being the, the initial pain, the initial event that causes the, the pain. Uh, but then the second arrow is your response to that pain. And it leaves you with a, a choice, uh, an option. And, you know, that may well be avoidable. And I think in this song and songs on the rest of the album, uh, Sufjan's certainly kind of dwelling on that second arrow. Um, you know, whether he's made a choice or that's what he wants to do in order to work through it and you talked about the, the catharsis and you know the, there's certainly something in in this and I think you know within interviews um Sufjan has spoken about how the process of making the album had been helpful in, in processing his grief uh, and I think that's sort of you know an interesting thing. There seems to be as I say a, a bit of a lack of organization about his thoughts you know when he, in the second verses uh, he's talking about should have wrote a letter um almost as if you know he he, what, he is guilty about not putting his thoughts into order and a pre, you know, uh, I guess more close to the, the, the event itself. And there's a, a bit of a sense that he feels if he had done that, maybe things could be better in some way and he wouldn't be within this black shroud. Um, and uh, I mean, I was looking at a, um, an interview that he did with, uh, with Pitchfork and he kind of talks about... Uh, you know, um, various emotions that was he's feeling, the, the, the devastation that he'd sort of experienced. And he talks about this kind of vacancy that he found within him um, because he'd had this kind of loss uh, that wasn't really present in his life entirely in the first place. And that, that, that kind of loss is, is, you know, really quite a difficult thing to process, it would seem. And I think this is what this, this song's trying to come to terms with somewhat. Um, and, you know, it kind of, speaks um about be my rest be my fantasy uh and within this kind of uh interview with with pitchfork it, it kind of said that he'd build up a bit of a, a mythology about his mother carrie um you know in, in in lieu of actually having had a uh um a knowledge of her as a person um in in her entirety so it's kind of uh created this kind of uh fantasy kind of situation around uh, his mom, which, you know, I guess um, 
developed a, a, an idealistic viewpoint of her. Some of the things are picked up on within this song, which is also true of the rest of the album, is there's a, a real sense of place in, it, in a lot of places. Uh, you know, in this song, he talks about uh, the Oregon uh, breeze. Um, I think this refers back to some summers that he actually did spend with his, his mum, Carrie, when she was with uh, his stepfather, Lowell. I think there's uh, three summers between the age of five and eight that he spent with her. Um, so I guess that sense of place across the, the album um, is, is uh, you know, really quite um, present. Um, another thing, sort of, you know, to mention about the song maybe is, is that uh, towards the end, um, there's a real sort of change in tone in the music and I think the lyrics as well to an extent. It's really quite sparse to start off with, but then there, you know, some um, more instrumentations added, and there's, there's some synths in the background and things, and it kind of changes from this kind of sparse, desolate kind of sense of disconnection to a more kind of hopeful tone. The lyrics kind of reflect that. He kind of speaks about uh, his his brother having a daughter, which is true. I mean, I looked into that. It's is is brother does definitely have a daughter um, and uh, she you know obviously has potentially become a, uh, a conduit for him to kind of experience his mother through a, a later generation which provides with with some hope that said you know the, the, the in the last three verses they seem to be kind of you know separate from the uh, the rest of the song in the middle one of those verses things seem to go back to feeling there's nothing left there's no reason to live um, so it kind of Again, is pointed out that kind of non-linear sense of the grief that he's uh, experiencing is kind of finding some hope, but then kind of falling back again. Before in the last verse, I think it's it's kind of combined as a sense of regret, uh, nothing can be changed, and then the very last line is is again she brings uh, the daughter brings illumination. So yeah, there, there didn't seem to be a, particularly a sense of breakthrough in the song. I think there's some meaning that's found within this kind of coming generation, um, but it's it certainly seems to be. Uh, a working through a cathartic sort of expression of of grief, as I say, which I think kind of reflects the album on a, on a greater scale as well. So, yeah, interested to hear what you guys think. Are we going to have a discussion or leave it to the end? Well, we can say a little bit about it and then and then maybe um, have a more general discussion at the end. I mean, I'll say something quickly, which is that, yeah, when you hear the, um, the third verse, the video star anecdote here, it's quite interesting in terms of thinking about his earlier work, because this video store thing occurs on a song called Romulus on the, his, his mm. an early album called Michigan. And you think that in this album, he's written these kind of charming vignettes of small time life in America, and that it's this uh, sort of fantastic bit of creative writing. Whereas really, retrospectively, we can see maybe a bit more of it is autobiographical than we might have thought. The other bit that I quite like about this song is um, this little part which goes about the bridge to nowhere. And the reason I like that little part is because there's a working through of his grief in this, which is a kind of conscious effort to work through the grief. But there are some other forces going on in here which you can use to work through grief as well. And one of them is just rebuilding the repression a little bit and just going, well, the past is the past, whatever, forget it. This isn't an ineffective technique, and it's not exactly a useless technique, I think, when dealing with things like this. You know, there's got to be a bit of scope for repression. And it's, of course, one of the things that Freud tells us, you know, it's more about getting the perfect setup of repressing the right things and and the right level of repression than it is of just having a total free-for-all, every thought just pops out and is 
enacted upon. And I think in the song I'm going to talk about later, there's going to be a bit of anger as well, which is another one of these quite useful ways of moving forward. Ken, what do you think? Yeah, I also, uh, just to follow on exactly from what Stephen's saying about sort of building on this repression and kind of pushing things back and sort of making a sort of positive march into the future, just the last few lines I, I find quite uplifting, About well, an attempt to be uplifting, um, talking about his niece. You know, my brother had a daughter, beauty that she brings, and he starts singing about illumination, illumination, as if he's kind of putting some hope in the, the future generation. There is a kind of a shift kind of, Probably, I think it's about halfway, two thirds through the song. Like Russell was saying, exactly when the you know it, it, it starts, the music starts to change, um, and it it gets a little bit more kind of I wouldn't want to say dream poppy, but a little bit more that kind of sort of synth kind of warm kind of uh, and uh, sort of envelope of sound sort of atmosphere to it, which I think adds this kind of sense that it is building towards something something positive. I think after the lyrics have been done, the music then takes a slightly darker turn which I think is a kind of a, you know, as maybe a sign that the repression isn't necessarily working or the, the um, you know, the kind of uh, the, the sort of push into the future isn't necessarily going to, to cover up all of the gaps. But at least it's a, it's a start, I guess. So, yeah, I find this song has a, a little bit of a positive twist, you know, just towards the end, which I, I quite like. Joe, that leaves you to go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, following on from there, uh, this, uh, yeah, I mean, a few things... One, I absolutely love that that reference to the the um, leaving them in the video store. I think that's absolutely. I don't know. For some reason, I find that really heartbreaking. Um, it's just a, a, a sort of beautiful little detail. But at the end, this whole idea of the brother's daughter that coming in, and then he talks about illumination. That's a sort of recurring motif of the sort of album. Is this light of life sort of thing? So the one we're going to come on to that I'm going to talk about is there's a lot of references to light and sort of the idea of this, you know, light going out, which is obviously what the album really is about is this, the death of his mother, but this hope is there, this new light, this illumination coming from his, his brother's daughter. And in that, there's that hope that he might be able to find some connection that he never, he never had with his own mother, you know? Um, So I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, that's it, really. I think you've covered most of what... One thing I was actually... There's a question. Um, this Rose of Aaron's beard, is that... I don't know what that's a reference to, or is that part of this potentially made-up uh, mythology? When I was looking into that, because I did Google the term, and it, it just came up with this song, basically. But um, it, it, I think Aaron's beard turned out to be a flower um, of some sort, or a variety of flower. But I didn't quite get the reference myself, even from that. Oh, okay. I thought one of you might be able to... I thought it might be some sort of philosophical... It's the uh, Symbolaria Muralis. What's that? Symbolaria Muralis. Um, an ivy leaf, toad flax, kennelworthy ivy, native to southwest Europe. Uh, that's all it says on Wikipedia. I mean, oh, maybe okay. some symbolism to it, which I've missed. <laughs> yeah. On the um, the Genius Song Lyrics archive, someone's annotated that it may be a pun on yeah. the Rose of Sharon from Song of Solomon 2-1. It may refer to Aaron Rose, the founder of Roseburg, a town in Douglas County, Oregon, or it may be from this flower, which is God, used yeah. in formulating antidepressants. So it might be a reference mm. to that. Oh, yeah, could well be. Right. Or it may be none of them. So, Joe, do you want to continue and take us through our next song? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, let me just get my stuff together. Mind well, you, that really Aaron's means... beard is probably yeah. related to um, Moses' brother, Aaron, Aaron uh, who had a 
well, you know, 40 years wandering the desert, they probably had long beards, I would imagine. Wouldn't we all? Good. Um, okay, so yeah, so mine is uh, 4th of July. Um, so this is uh, this is one of these songs that I knew, like the whole album, I, I knew it, but I hadn't really delved into it that much. And I knew sort of what the album was about, but I hadn't really, hadn't really given it that much time in terms of getting into the lyrics. And then for this, I've been doing it. I hadn't quite realized how brutally sad this song is. I actually think this is potentially the saddest song yet on our, on our podcast, to be honest with you. Um, so much so I was trying to explain it. I was speaking to Rachel about it earlier and actually it, I was pretty much welling up. It's pretty, pretty out, outrageously sad. So this is the moment in the album really where he's talking to his mother on her deathbed and she's dying of stomach cancer. Um, and the beginning of it is like the evil is spread like a fever ahead. I'm assuming that's kind of him talking about the cancer itself spreading through her body. And then what goes on is a, a sort of conversation between him and her, a sort of back and forth. So the first verse um, is him speaking, the second is her and so on. And it's it's an incredibly touching song. It's, I mean, again, a bit like that video store reference in the previous song. There's there's a couple of lines in this. There's sort of towards the end. Um, there's the and I'm sorry I left, but it was for the best. Though it never felt right, my little Versailles. And that sort of I just think is a devastating little line to be in there. And what I like about this is you don't know how much of this conversation happened or didn't happen is made up or is real. You know, I'd assume actually most of it is is really his interpretation of almost what he'd kind of like to have been said because she was obviously deep, you know, incredibly ill and in a lot of pain apparently. And there's sort of all these little references where they, they have little names, you know, my little hawk and my little firefly and things like that. Um, and my, do you find it all right? My dragonfly. And it sort of builds up to the point. There's a few lines here that I'd like to see what you guys think of them as well. Like, shall we look at the moon? My little loon, why do you cry? It's, it's, I'm not sure what, what that's a reference to my little loon, whether it's potentially mental illness, him, him not coping with this, uh, or, you know, a reference to hers as, because obviously we've spoken about, she, she had schizophrenia and all this. Um, and his reference as well, I spoke before about light. So they've got this, they talk about the Tillamook burn and obviously the song's called 4th of July. Um, Tillamook burn. I didn't, I didn't know, I had to look this up, is, is a series of wildfires in Oregon. So going back to that sense of place that Russell mentioned in the previous song, you know, that's not something everyone would be be sort of at all familiar with. Same with 4th of July. I mean, in England, we know 4th of July is celebrated, but obviously what the getting, what he's getting at here, I think, is, is the, the ginormous, I suppose, light shows, the celebrations, the fireworks. Tillamook burn was huge, huge forest fires. Um, and it's this idea of that light going out. And I think what's really sort of touching is this idea that he's at the side of her bed trying to work through um, the life they never had together and the fact that she's leaving and he's back there with her. They, they're reconciled for the end, which is, um, yeah, pretty brutal. It reminds me a bit of we, we've had Jenny Lewis on a previous one. She's got a similar sort of story with her her mother, which she worked through in a very different way. This, I, I like, Russell, you spoke about this sort of process. It feels to me like a sort of grief sequence, this album. It's like he's going through 
all the different parts of this bereavement. And I saw somewhere he said about this song specifically, he said it's not some art piece because I think people would probably, probably like I am, I'm probably reading it the wrong way in parts, I'm sure I am. But he said there's nothing like, it's not an art piece or anything, this is my life. This is him just trying to get through this this process of grieving. And it's directly about that night in question where she where she actually died. So this is sort of, yeah, that part of the album. I think it's unbelievably sad. Well, a couple of things I'll just quickly say about the actual, because I think it's worth mentioning the actual, the song itself, how it sounds. So one thing I think with this whole album is it's got this wonderful warmth to it. Like it sounds quite warm. He never, his voice is never in that sort of breaking moment you get from the likes of Conor Obus and people like that when they're doing their really, you know, deep emotional stuff or really going into it. And yet this is really raw. Like, I think it comes across as incredibly raw to listen to, but it's actually sort of got this comforting warmth to the whole album, um, which I think is kind of, yeah, uh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I've got all sorts of other little bits and bobs that I'll probably come back to. But what do you guys think? I'd like to see what, what you guys think of what I make of it as well. I think that was a really interesting thing that you mentioned, Joe, with the, the mother speaking in some parts of it. And as I said earlier, one of the things you see in this um, melancholic mode is that the self takes on some aspects of the, the lost object. And what's interesting here is, of course, the object that has been lost was never really an accurate portrayal. You know, he didn't necessarily know his mother in in many senses that well. So we've got a kind of a melancholic mode where we're speaking through the mother, but the fantasy of what the mother might have been like rather than the sort of real mother speaking to him. So I do find this like a fascinating um, device to, to put in at this moment because this seems to be like the 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 dark moment on the album right i should have probably said before you did this song that we've we've missed a few out we've moved from the second song to the sixth song on the album and the the three before it were songs of his sort of memories of his mother and then this one is the sort of memory of the, the very last moments with his mother so we appear to be reaching some kind of crisis point as far as the sort of sequencing of the album would go at this stage what do you think about this one ken yeah, um, just to follow on, I think um, I quite like, well, I love a song, but I quite like some of the kind of very high instrumental sounds. He's, he's got these lovely kind of um, walls of um, sort of, well, kind of, I don't know, like a kind of embryonic um, sort of sound, um, beautifully produced. And, um, it, you know, in the background, there's, there's really kind of like high up, almost kind of angelic sort of synthesized sort of string type effects as well. And it seems to happen when um, sometimes when I think it, it's maybe like the mother speaking and it, it makes me feel as though it's kind of like an imagination of her speaking from beyond, not so much from beyond the grave. Like, you know, I guess like she's a ghost, I suppose, but maybe that, but like speaking down from heaven or something or some kind of transcendental other place. Um, so it, it feels as if it's a kind of projection of his mother, um, you know, upwards into the sky or kind of a, yeah, in a totally different world communicating. Russell, what did you think about this one? Well, I, I, I thought it was quite sort of interesting the the, the narrative of, of the song, say the back and forth between what appears to himself and either his mother, his interpretation of his mother. And one thing I sort of drew from it was that the the, the it, you know there's not much reassurance in what his mum is or his interpretation of his mum is, is saying back to him, like you know that we're all going to die. I mean, it's it's the truth, but it's it's not necessarily sort of reassuring within those circumstances. And what she seems to be empathising with him. 
there isn't the, uh, the the necessarily any anything that's going to be particularly healing about her comments. With regards to uh, the My Little Loom bit, Joe, um, I, I googled Loom, which appears mm. to be a, a bird. So I guess he's sort of mentioning other birds and flying creatures within there, but potentially some kind of double meaning there as well, because uh, um, he says sort of elsewhere um, uh, about how he um, does take on parts of his mother's. Uh, um, Sort of psyche, and uh, certainly in some interviews that I wrote, so there was a, a, a drive for him to sort of engage in some of her behaviours. He was wanting to go off and get trashed and take drugs and things like that. So I wonder whether, you know, at that moment, she he she could um, see some of herself reflected within him. So it could be that double meaning of uh, you know the bird as his reference elsewhere in terms of the hawk and other flying creatures, the dragonfly, the firefly, uh, but also, you know, seeing a part of herself within him. Or maybe just the the loon, you know, the moon in French. Yeah, Luna, Luna. Luna or whatever. Was it? Yeah. So you got any last thoughts about this one, Joe, or should we move on? Uh, I mean, we can move on pretty swiftly. I was just going to say there's a few other moments in it that I just think are, are very, very moving. This idea where he talks about, such a funny thought to wrap you up in cloth. Do you find it all right, my dragonfly? And it's this sort of thing that they're with the with the back and forth, like they're both using sort of names for each other, like that you'd imagine someone would a child, which I guess maybe goes back to this completely underdeveloped relationship. It's um, yeah, devastating, I think. And this the whole idea that what what do you learn? She's asking him what you know what what have you learned from the Tillamook burn on the Fourth of July. And what he's learned is that we're all going to die. Like all these, all these fires go out, all these lights are extinguished. It's, um, yeah, I think it's just, yeah, incredible song. So, well, that leads me to a, a question, which is, did anyone do the homework? I sat here and listened to the live version of this. Oh, oh shit! I didn't. Yeah, see I did that, not no. all of it. But, uh... in, in in the uh, we're all going to die in the live version, he shouts in in amongst the we're all going to die, but I'm still alive. Oh. So. There's like a little moment there, which is quite interesting. Anyway, that leads me on to um, the song I was going to talk about, which is The Only Thing. So in The Only Thing, we've got the sort of the high point, I guess, of his adverse reaction to his mother's death. So we've got, you know, thinking about driving his car into the canyon at night, cutting his arm in a Holiday Inn, which is a particularly sad location to kill yourself in a bath, I guess. And yeah, it seems to be the, the the sort of lowest moment until we get to again this third verse where he talks about the sea lion caves, which is a kind of natural wonder on the coast, where the sea lions frolic in a cave and faith in God and all of the other reasons that he he might want to continue his life. And the reason I wanted to talk about this one in particular was because um, on that live version of Carrie and Lowell where, the, where you can sort of see the whole album sequenced as a, a concert and um, a live event it's these little choruses where he's saying do I care if I survive this brew the dead when I found that they make a huge thing of musically and it seems to me the sort of breaking point in the album where he goes from this um, sort of build up and build up and build up of memories and grief and regret to a kind of you know, I'm not sure whether it's a recovery or a collapse, but the, the part basically where he gets angry and the, the music sort of changes to a, a, a more a faster and more upbeat and 
probably more angry bit of music is i think this um second chorus right do i care if i survive oh, the third chorus do i care if i survive this bury the dead where they're found and this seems to be like the moment i think in which everything begins to change around and we get to see this sort of second aspect which isn't just the the grieving in the album but we begin to see a bit of the upside and the the piecing back together of something approximating a life what do you think about this one ken um yeah, right. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I particularly like these these lines about should I tear my eyes out now? I think they're the, the angriest. Um, and it, it I don't know I don't know if it's necessarily supposed to, but it always reminds me of um, Oedipus, you know, ripping his eyes out after he, he's discovered uh, Oedipus that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's married his mother and murdered his father, etc. So I don't know if that's some kind of dimension to it. Um, I particularly like this one musically, um, and it's really uh, th- this kind of position of it being a kind of, uh, you know, nexus point between the breakdown, the road to the recovery. Um, I-, I love various aspects about the music of Sufjan Stevens, and I'll maybe talk about them a bit more with the next song. Um, but one of the things is this kind of really weird rhythmic precision, um, and some of the I, I would. would very much imagine that the lyrics came first. I mean, just listening to this, I don't know this, but I would imagine that the lyrics came first and that the um, the music sort of was written af- afterwards or perhaps alongside it, I don't know. But um, it, it scans really, really weirdly and there's some really kooky kind of time signatures um, that sort of happen at the ends of sentences as if he's got to deliver these lines and the music will have to sort of, you know, follow suit. Um, but it, it actually works. Be- I mean, it, it should be, you know, by all rights, an absolute mess towards the end of every line. Um, but he actually manages to, to, to somehow or other make it work absolutely perfectly. It's kind of it's real kind of high precisional clarity, which I think really marks him as an artist. Um, as I think it was Joe was saying before, you know, some of the kind of um, the effects that singers use to show their kind of absolute sincerity, like um, Connor Roburst and this constantly breaking down of the voice and kind of... Sort of built-in kind of messiness or scrappiness as if, um, you know, highly polished musicalities having to take a back seat to, um, you know, to the uh, direct emotional impact of the words and the expression. That's very different here, um, where it's, it's, it's so tightly produced, so delicate, you know, absolutely. And there's, there isn't actually, I don't sense, it, it, there's some fragile moments, um, but there's a kind of real sort of, I don't know, a kind of a core strength, which I think seems to be um, carrying him through, I think. So yeah, my thoughts about this one are mainly mainly musical, um, and that really sort of difficult line about shall I tear my eyes out now before I see too much, and then tearing my arms out as well before I want I want to feel your touch, kind of really um, sort of self annihilating as well. I've got a question for you about this one, Ross, which is I was saying a bit earlier. You know, one of the ways you can get past this is to sort of think it through and and work through it. But I mean, some knots of things are just not really workable through, especially in this kind of situation when the thing you're trying to work through isn't really a a certain thing. You know, it's a collection of childhood memories and and bits and pieces here. And I said there's a few different sort of strategies for it. One might be just you know going back to the repression. Another one might be just kind of anger and just taking a break and just going well forget it you know i don't have time for this which is something i sort of see happening a little bit in these these choruses you know do i care if i survive this it's like you know look it's all just too much let's just you know move on to the next sort of thought please this is being dwelt about for too long is this actually an effective strategy for getting past these things or is this uh me giving bad advice here um i i, th- I think it definitely can be and uh you know what what that 
kind of reminds me of is, I mean, it's, it's completely different to this sort of scenario, but I, I met a patient quite recently that had some quite horrific things happen to him when he was a, a young lad. And he'd managed to put those things away for several years, up until the point he'd been married uh, and had kids. And sort of just in this last year, he's started talking about what happened and it's led him into a mental health crisis, which he doesn't feel he can escape from now. Um, so I, I think his strategy had been quite effective in, in repressing and ignoring and moving on from, uh, you know, what those awful things that had happened to him. So I think that strategy can be very effective at times and just putting things into a, a closet. But I guess the risk is that at some point it may arise, uh, uh, you know, when a, a, a chink in one's armour appears and certain memories are... I mean, is this anger a bit like kind of hitting rock bottom? You know, they say you've got to get to the bottom before you can go back up the other side. Well, I mean, again, there's something in that as well. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I commonly say to people is, you know, a, a crisis can be a turning point and a crisis can be a springboard for change. And, you know, that hitting the rock bottom may well be a point where things can start to, uh, um, you know, improve again. So, yeah, that's true in a sense as well. But but one thing I sort of took from from this song, I mean, there's clearly some quite heavy, sort of dark, morbid, suicidal thoughts that he's been experiencing, but he, he sort of, his sense of faith and his sense of nature and things like that are the things that kind of bring him through uh, those suicidal thoughts. And, you know, it's quite sort of... Um, quite clear about that um, in, in various parts, like talking about, uh, talking directly about his, his uh, faith um, and lines and wonders, sea lions and caves in the dark and things like that. Um, it, it, it kind of, you know, something that I've been sort of interested in in the past is that link between sort of spirituality and uh, um, mental health and how spirituality can be a protective factor in terms of mental health, in terms of suicidal thinking. Um, you know, it doesn't mean it's always the case, but certainly when uh, when people do have a faith, a belief, um, you know, a, a sense of uh, being able to transcend um, real life, uh, even if it's sort of um, for a brief period of time, it, it can give that kind of sense of hope, that sense of reassurance that will get people through these dark times. Yeah, Joe, I can hear the <laughs> open two cans during the yes. minutes of this recording. No, yeah, Perhaps yeah. Perhaps they were just they were, they were, sausages, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so, Do you have any thoughts about this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have covered a lot of what I was thinking, but one thing that I... I, it sort of grabs me is this line where it says, in a veil of great disguises, how do I live with your ghost? And I feel like this is part, again, of this process of of bereavement and grieving is him trying to work out how he's now going to live past this with, in a way, the, you know, very, I suppose, uh, literal way, if you think of a ghost, of haunting him. This person who actually he wasn't really with in life, you know. And a veil of great disguises, it's kind of him... I, I, in my reading anyway, is him saying, you know, it's like you cover these things over, you disguise your grief or the things that are hurting you, um, but you have to live with it. And it's him, at this point, I think this is where he's realising that he's got to move past it, but that at the same time, he's never actually going to move past it because he's constantly going to be haunted by by this, um, well, by her and by and by their relationship that was or wasn't you know, as it was. So 
um yeah that's that's a bit that grabs me and then also yeah we there's been a lot of mention of this sort of anger of should i tear my eyes out now and all this at the end um and i think that's a very powerful moment it's i feel like this is a moment where he's starting to try and look past it but he's struggling to get over that sort of threshold so this brings us to our fourth song which is no shade in the shadow of the cross which kenneth is going to take us through Okay, great. Um, it's a it's a song which I knew quite a long time before I got to know any of the other songs from the album. Um, and I, I did actually, uh, when you guys suggested this album, I thought I didn't know it very well. But once I actually heard it, I thought, oh, gosh, yes, I, know, I know all these songs. Um, but I'd never actually studied them or thought particularly carefully about them. And I certainly didn't know the sort of background of, of you know, being about his mother and sort of partially his, was his, fa- his stepfather, I think, wasn't it? Um and it's it's it struck me as amazing what a what a difference it makes when you have that one kind of sort of i guess a kind of like master signifier that oh yes this is all about you know mother um and it, it puts a kind of different gloss on on this on this song for me certainly um it, it i'm not saying that it explains things um you know particularly i guess it just sort of highlights uh, some perhaps uh, some more subtle meanings um it certainly wasn't obvious to me that this song you know, was about um, his mother. I mean, it starts off talking about, you know, a lover. It's like, now that I fell into your arms, my only lover. Um, And there are themes of drugs as well in this one. You know, I search for the capsule and later on he's talking about sort of chasing the dragon. Um, But the thing that always struck me a long time ago was this kind of moment just towards the end when he's kind of talking about sticking a stake through the center of his heart. Um, I guess describing himself as a lonely vampire, um, but it's one that's taken drugs. Um, and it's, it's, it's a kind of weird mixed metaphor. Um, I now kind of read that almost as if it's perhaps a kind of mother sacrifice, possibly even the mother sacrificing him when he was, uh, you know, she gave him away when he was a baby, didn't she? Or when he, when he was very young. Um, there's certainly kind of lots of religious imagery right the way through it um not least in the title which is also the last last line there's no shade in the shadow of the cross which i mean am i right in thinking that he's a christian of sorts yeah 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 um so i mean there's this kind of imagery running right the way through it um but it's all it's you know i mean it's not the kind of stuff that you would think of as a christian song i mean you know there's blood on that blade fuck me i'm falling apart it's not exactly like the kind of thing that you would sing in church um and in a way it's it seems to be saying that there isn't any um there's no kind of comfort coming from religion almost there's no shade in the shadow of the cross that's in many ways how i read it um he talks at one point early on about um his mother giving wings to a stone which is a, you know a beautiful ambiguous poetic image but i kind of take it to mean or at least to um, produce the sort of symbol of the you know the kind of like an angel on a tombstone presumably then for for his mother um and the, the kind of the cross that that, that is, is associated with that and him not finding any kind of um refuge or comfort in it there's another image of the meadow lark which is i think one of these birds that's associated with you know this particular place oregon um and you know he's he's lying back beneath the shade of the meadow lark, and again that would of course like a, any bird kind of produce a kind of cross in the air. Um, but it it seems to be sort of saying that this um, this religion uh, that seems to be so important to him is not not working. I also wonder if it's maybe that's him sort of taking on the ego of the mother, I guess, or trying to see things from her perspective, um, particularly when it's these kind of um, I guess sort of 
you know, very self-destructive impulses of all of these drugs, and then ultimately um, driving a stake through the center of the heart, which is, uh, you know, a kind of real um, sacrifice. Um, I, I was interested in a thing Russell said a bit before about the, the kind of the Buddhist metaphor of um, taking one more hit and the second arrow, because I think in the, the line here, he says, I'll take one more hit when you depart. Um, I don't know if that refers to um, the mother who left him once the first time or abandoned him the first time and then abandoned him the second time by dying. Um, and maybe that's a kind of hit that he should have been prepared for, but, you know, wasn't because it's of such a different magnitude, such a different order. Um, I, I mean, I think this idea of taking on the mother's psyche, I think was something that one of you mentioned before. I, for, I forget who it was. Um, and I was sort of saying before how I think it was kind of partly through uh, this kind of lovely sort of musical, it's like a musical embryo, the whole thing. It's so kind of, you know, like the embryo is this kind of state of plenitude that we're, we're all, according to Freud, desperate to return to, you know, before we were born, where everything's given to us, you know, where all of our needs are nourished. Um, and I think you get that musically in all of Suf John Stevens' works because there are these, uh, you know, just kind of wonderfully, really tightly, delicately produced uh, uh perfect um deliverances of absolutely everything that he does um i went to a suf john stevens concert once after i'd i'd been to a, a concert by the national with a guy from work and it the sound quality was so awful i think for two consecutive different gigs that we both decided we were just giving up on popular music concerts live in any context <laughs> whatsoever um and then for some weird reason we decided to break that and go and see suf john stevens the next year is in Manchester in some church, funnily enough. And the, I mean, it was absolutely impeccable. You know, the, the, the control on his voice and the control of absolutely every parameter of the music is absolutely astounding. I mean, in this song, it's got this, uh, the, 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 it's the same verse, every musically the same verse over and over again. Um, and it's just a simple little line um, with a very, very repeated, monotonous, and then there's this beautiful, I'm not going to sing it because I'm terrible at singing, this beautiful kind of high note, which he just jumps to. It's really difficult to just jump up to a, a really stupidly high note like that. But he does so with this like absolute precision and this wonderfully controlled vibrato. And it's a weird thing because it's someone who is seems to be ultimately in control of his musical world. Um, and yet it's all about, I guess, trying to keep control of an emotional world, which he seems to be really struggling to do, um, particularly through these references to drugs and, um, you know, being kind of like a living death, um, etc. So there's kind of weird balance, I think, for me uh, between um, control which he seems to be out of and also seems to be in in a different way. I think one of the most beautiful aspects of the song. But uh, I know that Joe was interested in this song as well and wanted to do this one, but I bagsied it. So, Joe, I wondered <laughs> if you've got any thoughts about this one. Well, my, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you've covered quite a lot of it, but I, I see this as his point where he's questioning his faith yeah, because of what he's gone through and he's expecting some comfort from it and not finding it, which I assume I'm, I'm, a, I'm not, I mean, you're, you're more a man of the cloth than me, I think, Kenneth. Yeah, I'm, de I'm devout. Oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm a... I'm not at all. I'm an awful, you know, I'm a, 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 an atheist, I guess. Well, that's but, absolutely fine because you're going to hell and I, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, but, you, you know, hell is probably more fun, isn't it, I think? But, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're going there. <laughs> I remember when I was very small, I used to say I wanted to go to hell because I could watch Nightmare on Elm Street there. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Stephen's going to hell too for yeah. very different reasons. <laughs> I'll see so you So me and Russell go to the other place and we'll be all right. <laughs> but, 
but um but yeah i see this as it, him sort of questioning it and not and not understanding sort of why he's not getting the comfort that he feels he should have you know the 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 shade under the there's no shade in the shadow of the cross like he's not having that immediate comfort that i suppose some in in a lot of ways religion is if you like sold to people as this comfort but actually mm. when the when the hit of real loss of bereavement gets you it's like is is that comfort there and i think that's what he's sort of saying in this is he's starting to question a little bit his faith or at least question what he's getting from it in this you know in this rather raw moment and i i take that first bit when he says my only lover i i actually take that as being uh god or jesus christ i don't know if anyone else sees it as that i saw it as him saying like i you know i took you on as my guide or my you know um leveling sort of thing and then and then it's it's sort of been lost in this moment it's not also saying that's the end of it but then i also like that then you've got these little references to sort of very human things so this sort of like a champion get drunk and get laid i also Mm. took from that i take one more hit when you depart I also was going to mention, going back to Russell's um, mention of this Buddhist metaphor, I think that's really interesting. I, I thought exactly the same. It's like it'll take another another hit that potentially you should have seen coming, you know, um, which is her de- departing. But it's not the first hit that she's probably delivered oh. or that life has delivered, you know. Um, and then the last thing I'd probably say is this sort of, this whole end bit where it's saying I'll drive... Uh, state through the center of my heart, lonely vampire in Halo next fire, chasing that dragon too far. Then it goes on to, there's blood on that blade, fuck me, I'm falling apart. So this, there's blood on a blade, suggests there's already, there's a previous <laughs> murder or heart that has been staked. And it's it's this sort of, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure quite how to read that. Is it is it saying he's not blameless? Do you know what I mean? Like he's re, he's going to, stab himself with it but that blade's already been used it's like is it i don't know I, I, it's an interesting one i'm not sure mm. how to articulate what i think of that but i'd be interested to see what anyone else thinks of that oh no I was, well i've got no answer so i'm glad to hear what you said Stephen. but just to say one thing which is that the song ends really quite abruptly i always think and it's that's one of the sort of quite touching things about it it's just like mm. nothing is actually resolved in it um it, it just ends uh as if as if this is just one one verse and it just it just happens to casually end well i think the story here is that after his his mother dies and he kind of falls into depression and drinking and worries that he's Mm. gonna fall into schizophrenia it's it's this sort of the ghost is this sort of fear that oh my god you know i'm i'm gonna end up in this exact same position and if there's a hit here i'll you know take my kind of Zizek, uh, look hand through Zizek, and so this is like the hit of the real, you know, this one thing that you can't cover up with language or desire or anything else, which is a kind of fate, you know, predisposition, just the fact that this is going to happen to you regardless of whatever you do. And I think the thing that's being worked through here is this just absolute panic that he's going to end up being like his mother and the whole pattern is going to repeat itself in some way. One other thing I'll say uh, about this just before um, I ask uh, Russ is that this one strikes me as being a bit distanced, actually. 
And, you know, I, I don't think that this is in the heat of the moment. And the reason I don't think it's necessarily happening in the heat of the moment, it's more kind of memory or a, an over-exaggeration or a report of how he was maybe a few months previously or years previously. And he's kind of worked through at this point. It's just how, like, complete the list is. You know, we've got the heroin reference. We've got the crack cocaine reference. We've got the alcoholism. We've got, you know, the the self-harm it's like everything's in here it's just too complete a story of all of the different addictions you could possibly have that it, it almost seems over the top to me that you know in in so few words he can basically have every possible addiction simultaneously so it strikes me as is a kind of exaggerated memory stroke you know fear of what could happen rather than maybe what necessarily is happening. Because it is, sh- is it probably the shortest song on the album? It is it is short, isn't it? It, it barely gets yeah, going. Yeah, it is a couple of minutes. Nah. Yeah, six, six sort of verses, but they're only three lines each and very, very short each one. Well, Russ, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, I've had several thoughts while you guys have been speaking um, and... Uh, Forgive me, I've probably forgotten them all already, but I'll start with this one. Um, It was kind of mentioned about sort of, you know, his sort of ruminations upon both sort of addiction, reckless behaviours and religion. There seems to be a sort of face-off between the two. And I thought there was a bit of a suggestion that maybe addiction was, you know, alcohol, drugs and things like that were were, were actually becoming more affected than religion had been for him in dealing with the the circumstances, Um, maybe so in the short term. And the the other thing, I guess, uh, that you sort of touched on, Steve, was kind of, you know, uh, giving in to these kind of behaviours and I guess sort of taking on some of these behaviours from his his mother. I don't know whether that would be considered, as you said before, um, within that kind of scope of melancholia. But just from this sort of pitchfork interview, it, it kind of says quite sort of explicitly, I started to believe I was genetically, habitually, chemically predisposed to a pattern of destruction. Then goes on to say, uh, felt like abusing drugs, alcohol, fucking around a lot and becoming reckless and hazardous was my way of being intimate with her. And, you know, it's quite interesting. I think that's what we're seeing in this song, really, is is, is, is that kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, developing those behaviours to be intimate with her, his mom in some sense. And the other thing I, I kind of thought about, which, you know, potentially isn't right, but, but I don't know. I think it's interesting that he, he mentions Casper the ghost. And you seem to suggest, Steve, that that was his fear of kind of falling into this uh, potentially schizophrenic mind state. And I thought it was interesting that uh, there may be a link there with uh, uh, Daniel Johnston, who had uh, um, similar ruminations about Casper the ghost, which kind of caused him a, a mental breakdown as well. Um, I was going so to say, Russ, I, th- there, I, don't I know. thought of that as well the Casper thing, and I thought, am I reaching too far? Is that, or is that a Daniel Johnson reference? So I'm glad you said it. I mean, I don't know. I've got no idea, but it's a, it's just a weird little a thing to mention it. Like Casper, it just seems like quite a weirdly specific character from a kid's thing to sort of reference as well. But anyway. Well, we've talked about um, a song H at this point. Does anyone have any overall thoughts about Carrie and Lowell? Not just about this album, but I, I thought, you know, through the process of doing this uh, podcast, um, it's kind of led me to listen to a lot of albums that are to do with personal pain, grief, whatever that might be. And sometimes it's made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this album, um, an album by uh, Mount oh, Erie yeah. called A Crow Looked At Me, which is about the death of... Uh, Bill Elverham's wife and uh, Nick Cage's ghost theme, which is about the death of his son. And it kind of makes me feel uncomfortable because, you know, I understand the kind of process of um, 
you know, catharsis and needing to kind of work through it. But then I kind of think, you know, there's some commercial gain in this as well. And that kind of leaves me in this kind of weird situation where I'm kind of thinking, is that okay? Is it okay to kind of, you know, pour your heart out onto record and release it to the masses? I, I was interested to think about what, 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 what people thought about that. Oh, I think this is, when I hear it, it's a job well done. You know, it's like an excellent example of catharsis and getting over it and getting past it. And I, I don't particularly feel that sad when I listen to this album. I think, or at least I don't feel sad for him. I, I feel like quite overall, quite, you know, like he's not in so bad a place and he's kind of getting through it quite effectively. So I think it's quite a good, almost exemplar of what you should really do things... in, in grief. And sometimes no, the no, stuff yeah, that worries me the most, sorry, Ken, I'll, I'll be done. Sometimes the stuff that worries me the most is when you hear in a record these repressed things that the person like can't let out and uh, are floating away under the surface of it. And that's the really scary thing, I think, when you listen to a bit of music. I've already said before, Neutral Milk Hotel kind of scare me a bit in that way. Um, but with this one, I, I just sort of think, well, you know, job done. Yeah, mm. I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting from Catharsis from Aristotle, because he you know, he used to write about this a lot, and with music as well, because it was all about the Greek tragedies, where the idea was that you would go along to these Greek tragedies, and the music was supposed to be absolutely wild and reckless. And you were supposed to get this kind of homeostasis, where you kind of purged yourself of all of your negative emotions by going through this kind of like hell music. Um, which is is very different to the kind of catharsis you get from this really kind of tightly controlled, beautiful, um, you know, very very delicate um, music. So it's I don't know I don't know, nothing particularly more interesting than that to say. Um, but it's yeah I I always myself associate catharsis not so much with these kind of um, sort of very very gentle songs, but with the, their position in relation to much um sort of harsher angrier ones so i think for example the i forgot the name of the song we talked about three or four minutes ago the the one which was um you know the kind of the nadir of the album um in a way when it's uh, gets starts to get really quite aggressive and it's about you know tearing my eyes out i think of that as one of the kind of stages the crucial stages of catharsis then leads you through um through to these stages i was also thinking just a little bit about what Rus russell was saying myself um comparing with uh, bright eyes who we talked at length about a couple of weeks ago um and bright eyes is um, one of their albums lift lifted is full of songs where he's kind of talking about how he's been rehearsing this grief and he's got this really kind of cynical attitude to um you know i think he talked about poets and playwrights and people like that rehearsing their um you know rehearsing their grief and then he, he has a song method acting and false advertising um basically saying that we're making an awful lot of money out of this um and we're expecting you to all love me and sing along and buy my records and it's it's it, it's it's weird because although he's saying that he's it's it's like it's a fear that he's got that he he's going to be taken like this and there's no question that well as far as I'm concerned there's no question that he's really really genuine in everything that he sings very much like Sufjan Stevens is but I think Bright Eyes do have this kind of inbuilt um, sort of sense of guilt that they are bearing themselves you know suffering in public um, bearing themselves in front of everybody I guess the um, consolation that artists should be able to take from it is that they help other people through other their own situations it's the this yeah and that's what, um, how i resolved this kind of uncomfortable feeling so that, you know when, when, I, when i thought about it more i kind of thought well 
you know, it, it could be kind of a form of self-help literature. It is, you know, open, honest and frank. And, and as you say, Steve, I think Sufjan does a, an incredible job of it on this album. And so it could resolve those uncomfortable feelings by thinking, you know, this is this is helpful, you know, for someone that has grieved, has these kind of similar feelings. It it's, gives them a sense they're not alone within it. Um, I think the one that made me feel more uncomfortable was was uh, A Crow Looked At Me, which is, you know, really quite frank, bleak kind of uh, um, look at death, um, which I, I don't think is, is um, I mean, it, it has its own merits, but I think um, but this one, it, it rings more for me in, in, in terms of, you know, it's, it's helpfulness potentially for other people. I think one of the things you see in this album is that it's almost like a cycle. It's a sort of beginning to end you know, grief and then the road back from grief. Whereas maybe with the bright eyes stuff that Ken was talking about, it's more sort of episodic and you hear a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there, but it never really resolves. It's just that, you know, over time, more problems come into his life and he just sings about more problems. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And there's there's some kind of underlying thing that everything is just material to express. Yeah, this does feel more like a kind of, I wouldn't call it a concept album, but it's, you know, it's, it's got that kind of a sense of narrative that runs right the way through the album itself, rather than this kind of episodic form, as you say. Absolutely right, Stephen. Joe, you should be getting nicely toasted by now. You got a final thought? Well, I'm desperate for the toilet, but um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, the album is absolutely wonderful. I think it, I think it does really take you on this full journey of dealing with loss and grief um and yeah a bit unlike russell you meant that mentioned that mount eerie album which is a really really bleak listen like it's a it's a quite a wonderful album but like that's just really at the bottom of of it all whereas this you feel like you're going through this journey but it does have this weird i mentioned before and i don't know I, i find it very strange that it does have this really comforting vibe to the whole album if you if you don't really dig into the lyrics it just sounds really beautiful um and soft you know like rounded edges to everything um but actually can be quite devastating um within it if you really look but yeah yeah that's it really and yeah i need the toilet point that bombshell i think um (laughs) so thank you all for for doing it and for the listeners um because this might be a whole hour episode in about two more seconds then yeah thank you for taking the time to listen through it